welcome back to the Act Two podcast, a podcast for the real life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And we have a very special guest today. I would say a master of the adaptation, a writer whose work you most certainly know and love. He wrote Hercules starring The Rock and Josh and I drink his Zoa drink constantly. So he is an unofficial sponsor of our show. He doesn't know it. Snow White and the Huntsman. Huntsman Winter's War, live action version of Beauty and the Beast. And now his latest movie, which is very different from all of those, Evan, a horror movie called The Unholy, based on a novel, which we will definitely get into. But we're going to be talking to this impressive human today, specifically about the craft and process of adaptation, which is really just my long-winded way of saying welcome, Evan Spiliotopoulos. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Yes, welcome. Thank you for coming to the Act 2 podcast. This is probably the best day of Tasha in our lives right here. I, I totally understand that and I approve. <laughs> it's all downhill for now, guys. Yeah, it's, it's done. We're done. Oh, have a great, have a great day. <laughs> well, we're hanging out with Evans Day because he has, as I said, a new movie coming out called Unholy. It came out in April. Actually, you can all see it now. Based on the 1983 novel Shrine by James Herbert, produced by Sam Raimi. So, Evan, I may have some Xeno questions for you later on that I'm sure you know the answer to. So just oh, prepare for that. <laughs> and this was also Evan's directorial debut, which we'll definitely be talking about that transition from screenwriter to director, which I'm really looking forward to. But Evan, before we get into that, every time we talk to a guest, we start with how you got into this crazy ass business. Did you go to film school? Did you know you always wanted to be a writer? Or like Josh, did you meet a cow one day and uh, decide you wanted to be a screenwriter? <laughs> that, that story is like 50% true, Evan, but please. Uh. It must have been a hell of a charming cow. Uh-huh. Um, I am going to completely derail your podcast by first asking you, what is your cat's name, Tasha? Oh, that is apropos over there. That little fatty is apropos, Excellent. but I call her Kitty, and that's what... That's the extent of her brain that she accepts. <laughs> Excellent. I ask because at, at some point during our session, you may see a large tabby attacking my head. That will be Teddy. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Good to know. So so how I got into movies, I actually did go to film school. First of all, look at me. I know your, your listeners can't see me, but uh, fall in all of my magnificence. I actually have a master's <laughs> degree in screenwriting. So do I, uh, Evan. Isn't it the most ridiculous degree in the world? It is useless. It is absolutely useless. It is no, money no, no. very badly spent. Um, Suckers. Uh, totally. <laughs> I tell everybody, just download the 100 best screenplays that the AFI put out like 10 years ago. Read them and you will learn anything you need to know about formatting, characterization, and the actual technical side of screenwriting. You do not need to get a master's in screenwriting. Nobody gives a crap. Yes, mm. great advice. But that's not what got me into movies. Obviously, I got into film school because I wanted to get into movies. I was a reader at a very early age and a writer at a very early age. I started writing short stories, and and I didn't know such a thing as screenwriting existed probably until I was 10 years old. And when I did, it was the perfect marriage of things that I loved. It was film and writing. So I always wanted to be a screenwriter. There is like nothing else. Maybe when I was six, an astronaut. But since then, I realized that's just crazy talk. So screenwriter. <laughs> 10 is a really early age. I didn't yeah. realize movies were written by people until I was in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> Many people still don't. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So you knew at 10 you wanted to be a, a screenwriter. And then did you study it in undergrad as well? Did you try and do business or do something more level-headed? Or did you go straight to film? 
Oh, it was straight to film, but it was film theory. So I have been exposed to the masters. Um, but actually, I got to tell you, film theory was a much better degree for getting a knowledge of the history and legacy of cinema than a master's degree in screenwriting. Because they exposed me, you know, to Fritz Lang. They exposed me to Andre Bazin. They exposed me to uh, artists and directors and filmmakers of the silent era through what in the early 90s was the modern era. And I might not have discovered them until much later in my life. And so many people get into screenwriting or get into films in any capacity without knowing older works, without knowing what led us, what the evolution of the form that led us to this point in time. And frankly, film history with many people starts with Star Wars, uh, which is awesome. But go watch The Ring of the Nibelungen that Fritz Lang did as a silent movie in the early 30s, and you'll find Lord of the Rings and Star Wars right there. So... There's, uh, I think that's a flaw in, in our education for uh, filmmakers, for young filmmakers, because I think the more you know about the talents that came before you, the more you can steal shamelessly from them. Totally agree. That was actually my favorite part of getting my MFA was actually learning film theory and, and learning from the masters. The other stuff I have not taken with me at all, yep. any of the actual screenwriting stuff. So I'm very curious about that little kind of tender process between graduating from film school and how you actually got your first job. Can you talk a little bit about that little space or maybe it was the big space? I took a year after I graduated and just wrote a ton of specs. So I had like, I filled a portfolio and a body of work. But of course, what that did was it was less about the quality of those scripts as it was I was evolving as a writer and discovering on my own uh, terms the, the craft. And I moved here in 95, and bizarrely, I got a movie straight after. Uh, it, was a, it was like a domino series of events. Um, and before you go, oh, wow, it was awful. But it was a movie. So the domino series of events was I got a job as a PA on a TV movie. And the line producer and I hit it off. And he was like, well, what are you? Are you, are you an actor like everybody else? And I'm like, no, I'm a writer. Oh, you're like everybody else else. <laughs> and uh, he had a friend who had just done a deal with uh, the Sci-Fi Channel when it was still known as SF. And um, they were doing the Monster of the Month movies for like uh, a million, half a million dollars. And uh, they, he needed writers. So I got a job with a company called Mahogany Pictures. And I wrote a movie called Gangster World with David Leisure, who uh, has passed away. He was a wonderful actor, but he was like Steve Martin for commercials, basically. Interesting. And, oh, yeah. and then a movie called Legion, which was a wonderful assembly of not superstars, well, not stars, but it was like Terry Farrell, who's a great actress from Dark, uh, uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Parker Stevenson, Rick Springfield, Corey Feldman, Troy Donahue. So it was, it was, a, it was a cool collection of people, but at the same time, it was not a great movie. It was made for like half a million and we, uh, it was shot in a hangar in East LA. Mm -hmm. So um, I was getting these little credits, but really the good part of it was I was learning. I was watching movies getting made. I was on set for both those films. And it was basically finding my way around the geography of a film set that was the real education there. Mm -hmm. And then there were three lean years where I was just trying to get things sold, try to get things set up, nothing was happening. And then the true breakthrough happened in 2000. I had like a grand in my bank account. I was honestly thinking of, okay, I need to like start looking for work because right then I was, I was burning the money I had made off my two sci-fi channel movies. And I got a script in to Disney TV and some executive there that I've never been able to find out who passed it on to Disney animation and Disney animation called me in for a meeting because they felt that I wrote in a visual style. Now, 
animation scripts and live action scripts have absolutely no differences in terms of format, in terms of the actual process. The, what the animation department looks for is just a more visually descriptive way of, of setting up your page and setting up your scenes. And they felt that I had what they were looking for. They had me in for general. They liked me. They hired me on just to be a staff writer uh, for uh, Jungle Book 2, the animated sequel to the 1967 Disney movie. And then they seemed to still like me. So they kept me on for eight years. And that was it. That was absolutely it. I need to just say something. Mm. I have a little girl. And I have watched many, many Disney movies with her. And when I went and looked at your IMDb, <laughs> I said to myself, oh, my God, I am talking to the man who wrote like, you know, the Tinkerbell thing. And, and this and like I've seen your work before, which just kind of blew my mind. Thank you. No, thank you. Do, can I, <laughs> do I have permission to name drop a second? Oh, please. Yeah, please. Okay. So uh, a few years ago, I had a meeting with Spielberg. And it was for a project. He had to, he had to approve the writer, da, da, da. So he has me for a meeting. He hears my pitch. It's, he likes the pitch. It's all good. Then he's like, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Who are you? I'm like, okay, okay. So <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote Hercules with The Rock. And Spielberg kind of nods. And I'm like, I wrote The Huntsman, Winter's War. And maybe his eyebrow twitches. And I'm like, oh, shit. And it wasn't Beauty, Beauty and the Beast hadn't happened yet. So I'm like, this guy's not getting impressed. I'm like, all right, I wrote Pooh's Heffalum movie. His eyes go wide. And I'm like, I wrote Tinkerbell and the Lost Treasures. Like, no. Nope. Yep. <laughs> and, and I'm rattling off my animation credits, and he's like jumping on his chair. And he's like, uh, I have kids at home. Uh, you've got cred in my house. <laughs> Who knew? You're, you're in my life. You've been in my life for a little while. <laughs> I, I, warp, I warp young minds is what I do through my work. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, now I want to know if you're inserting little messages. Every now and again. Uh, yeah, watch my horror movies. Watch my horror movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So as yeah. I said, Evan, you are a master of adaptation. Hercules is a Greek myth, obviously. Snow White movies are fairy tales. Let's talk about adaptation because it's its own beast. I think it's like a separate set of skills, really, than just writing an original spec script in many ways. So... My first kind of question then is what do you feel is the number one difference that your brain has to make between writing your own original stuff and then writing an adaptation? In many ways, it's, it's an editorial process because invariably, if you're based on a book, your script is going to be a hell of a lot shorter. If, you're, if it's an article, then you're creating more, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's go by the example of a book first. Trying, the novel by James Herbert. Uh, the late great UK horror novelist that The Unholy is based on was 420 pages. The script's 105 pages. So the first job there is, what do you leave out? What is your story? And I think it was William Goldman who said something along the lines of, when you read a book you love, you set it down, and three days later, the scenes that stayed with you in your memory form the skeleton of your adaptation. And that's great. absolutely true. So that's one thing. Yeah. So now, you know, these are the scenes that, uh, that attracted me to this material. I love them. They've got to be in the movie. The second process is who's your lead? Who, through whose eyes are we seeing this movie? Now, in my case, it was Jerry Finn and in the book, it was Jerry Finn. So right then and there, you're like, what scenes are we going to be seeing through Jerry Finn's eyes? Everything else has to go away. Uh, the book has a huge ensemble supporting cast. You basically get to meet the citizens of the fictional town of Banfield. Uh, you get to meet um, competing journalists who show up in the United States. The book takes place in England. You get to meet Alice's parents, which I eliminated in the movie. 
So you, it's got a cast that might work great for a miniseries, but for mm-hmm. film adaptation, all these little tangents are lovely in the novel, but they're detracting from your main skeleton, the main thrust of your story. So those are the approaches for a novel adaptation. For something that requires more invention, like let's say an article, it's, that's actually closer to an original screenplay, even though it's technically an adaptation, because the article will provide you the environment and the mood and the basic plot. But after that, you're creating the characters, you're creating the narrative, you're creating a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of, one of our sort of famous stories we talk about on this podcast is how... Uh, the Fast and Furious franchise started with an article about street racing (laughs) and they had to build an entire story around that. It's one of my favorites. So as you were talking, the kind of question came up of when you were reading this book, Shrine, did you ever for once think, I really want to do this as a TV show or was it just always going to be a movie for you? Absolutely. And always a movie. Uh, In fact, the first time I thought of it as a TV show was just now when you said it. (laughs) You know, I read the book very early. I read the book when it got published when I was 13. And immediately suggested a film to me and immediately suggested, by the way, a marriage of The Exorcist with Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole, because that's a great 1950s movie about a corrupt journalist, morally corrupt journalist. And uh, by seeing those two genres melded together, I felt, wow, I love movies that combine genres that aren't just one thing. So it it felt like that was a really classy way of getting into what is fundamentally a ghost story. Yeah. Never thought of it as a TV show. You know why? Because with the exception of the Haunting of Hill House and the Netflix French TV series Marianne, which I encourage any horror fan to stream immediately, it's hard to sustain consistent frights in a 10-hour, 12-hour series. X-Files or shows that are uh, episode, one episode at a time get away with it because each episode is its own movie. But uh, The Haunting of Hill House and Marianne are, of course, one gigantic story. And to be able to sustain the suspense and to be able to sustain the twists and the characters and all that throughout uh, that long of a time, it's very impressive. You know, there aren't that many long horror movies. I think The Exorcist is 220 and The Empty Man, which came out last year, is 215, maybe more. Uh, But usually uh, horror movies are very tight because you want to keep things moving. That's very encouraging because I am taking a horror pitch out later this month. (laughs) Go for it. And have you always been a horror fan? Yes. Like, okay, yes, because you obviously read Shrine when you were a teenager, and you yep. were like, I'm going to make this movie in yep. 30 years from right now. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I said. But along the way, I'm going to write little kids' movies. <laughs> no, I mean, that's really, I mean, that's, it's almost inspirational, you know, you, you, like, you manifested it. You like, this is something you loved, and it sounded like something you knew that you were going to do uh, mm-hmm. at some point. I got to tell you, the thing is, it was an enormous responsibility because obviously you're dealing now, you're dealing with the work of of an author who has passed away. And for me, the biggest challenge was, oh my God, is he going to like it? And now is the family going to like it? And in all the process of this movie, and thankfully the movie has turned a profit and thankfully all these good things, but we got a letter from his family, which is his four daughters, and they thought it was the best adaptation of their father's work ever. And I sent it to, to the entire cast and crew. And Jeffrey and I were sitting, Jeffrey Dean Morgan and I were sitting going, this is what it's, it, it, all the other rewards don't matter. The fact that we did right by the, these folks, that's what matters. That's awesome. Now, I don't want to move I, into like nitty gritty. I feel like we've gone to an emotional place. <laughs> I know. I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know where to go from there. Is that a second I, cat? I, I, <laughs> no, that's the same one. Okay. She's just large. She just takes up more space. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I just want to say, I, I've known Tasha for a very long time. We've been doing this podcast, you know, for a while. We've been friends forever, but... I've never taken the time to ask the name of her cat. 
which tells you a lot about Joshua, doesn't it? <laughs> when you asked, I was like, oh, curious. Anyway, moving on. All right. I am very, I, I take on a lot of adaptations as well, Evan. And I'm very curious when you get sent a book as a submission or any kind of IP, really, what's the first thing that you're looking for? What's the thing that's going to make you say, yes, I want to adapt this or no way. I'm firing my agents. Why did they even send this to me? <laughs> well, the first thing I'll say is there's a lot of unfilmable material out there. And I use the word unfilmable because I don't want to say they're bad. Books that get published are 99% of the time very impressive examples of writing. Not all books are movies. And I, because I write fairy tales, I get to send a lot of Harry Potter knockoffs. Mm. To see those books and to know the Harry Potter franchise, you realize the magnitude of what J.K. Rowling achieved. Because I, start, I, did, I read all the Harry Potter books, and I started them... I think when the first movie had already come out, so I was a little bit late on the game, and then I read, devoured all of them. They are movies. As soon as you read them, you're like, oh, yeah, if you have the money to do this, this is a movie. Why? Because characters are great. That leads to fantastic plots. The world is so detailed, so imaginative, and they're constantly moving. So the, the problem that I, I encounter with a lot of the books that I read is that they're static. Like they, they're, they'll have a good concept of its core, which will get me to read it in the first place, and then they'll go absolutely nowhere. They're not developed for a movie. They're right. developed just fine as a book. Uh, and it's really, so to, to answer what I'm looking for, I'm looking for great characters and a compelling story. Now that sounds like the most obvious answer imaginable, but it is so hard to find that. Yeah. I mean, I think the real thing that, that I take from that, too, is the movement. 100%, you read so many books where half the book takes place with two people talking, and it's beautiful writing. But yeah. how is that a movie? You're absolutely yeah. right. Let me give you another example, by the way, of something that is you wouldn't imagine until you read it. So there is a very famous um, American noir book called The Red Right Hand, and I, I forget the author. It's one of the great noir authors of the day. They've been trying to make it since the 40s. The problem is that there's a twist in it that is completely ruined by the, by the image, by the picture, by the movie picture, because there's a character in the book who is two characters on the page. Mm -hmm. And until you realize at the end that that guy was pretending to be another guy, which is a great twist, you realize when you shoot this, there's no way to get away with it. Mm -hmm. Because it's going to be the same actor. Mm -hmm. So th those are elements that a novel doesn't have to care about because it's never going to be that, that it works great on the page. Shoot it, you're out of luck. Right. So obviously the deal breaker basically is, you know, bad characters. You're not interested in these when, when you're reading a submission. Part of my job as an, uh, as an adapter is to create great characters and create a great plot. But the fact of the matter is there are so many IPs out there that already have them. It's unless there's something compelling about a book or a piece of material that still doesn't have those great characters or those uh, elements that I'm looking for, there's just no reason to pursue it. Yeah. So let me give you an example of like something that has just the best murder imaginable, but the characters are crap. That's something that maybe you, you just roll up your sleeves and you go, you know what? This concept is so original. This twist is so unbelievable. I will commit myself and turn it into my own and create the elements that are missing. Yep. Sure. That's so rare to find that thing that's just so just remarkable that everything else can be fixed. 
Yeah, that's always been the tough part for me is deciding when to say yes or no on something when that concept is just so fucking good. And yeah. like you can see the world coming together, but you'd have to scrap all of the characters. You'd have to do so much heavy lifting with what the plot actually is in order to achieve the concept successfully. I'm curious when you if you come upon a book like that, will you say no? Is is that the line or or do you feel like sometimes that concept makes you want to pull up your sleeves and get in there? No, I, it's the latter. My, the concept makes me want to pull up my sleeves. The question is, is this doable? Is it, is it going to be a, a too big of a challenge? Am I biting off more than I can chew? And also, it's like, what are the elements? I, let me tell you another story. I, I'm not going to say who the filmmaker is, but uh, a person I know was attached to direct a series of books recently. And the minute that you hear series of books, you're like, okay, this is going to last like, it's a trilogy, it's whatever. And they lasted six months and then they pulled out. And they pulled out because the books, although the books were in bestsellers, the author insisted on every single element to be kept in the adaptation. Guys, you can't do that. When you're adapting, it's a different, an entire different medium. When you're adapting books into movies, that's a completely different uh, technology, different everything. And so um, to have the insistence that every character is going to be included in your adaptation is, is a killer. You can't write a story that way. You can't do a screenplay that way. Imagine if... I had to include every single character in the town of Banfield in The Unholy. Then it would be a miniseries. It would be a completely unwieldy project. So you run into what, what are going to be the obstacles even beyond the creative when you start looking at things that need complete reinvention. Taking a slight pivot and just talking about sort of the business aspect of it for a second. We talk about in this podcast a lot about pitching and how terrible it is. <laughs> and I think that when you, you know, when you're pitching for something that's an adaptation, that is its own different format of pitching, right? So I'm curious when you pitch for, I'm assuming you pitch for, you know, Hercules or Snow White or even Unholy, how, how did you approach that pitch specifically? Did you talk about, this is the material and this is what I'm going to change about the material? Or did you just pitch what your take was? Pitch what my take is. And uh, let me just say that I hate pitching. Uh, so if terrible. we wanted to be actors, we would have become actors. And I encourage whenever I can to, I write outlines and I say, read my outline. This is what I'm going to do. And if you like it, let's do it. And um, it's funny because every, every rep I've ever had has told me, oh, you can't send out outlines because you're giving them the opportunity to punch holes in it. And I'm like, yeah, that's the point. Let them punch holes in it. If they, if we are not on the same page, there's no reason to hire me. If they read something and go, oh gosh, you know, it's 90% there, but that 10% uh, is making us pass, then they're idiots because that 10% is fixable. But yeah. it, it, that, so I'm a very big believer in the outline. Now, if you get into situations like, oh, don't leave an outline behind because somebody's going to steal it, that's, that's a completely different can of worms. But on a purely creative level, I, we're writers. This is what we do. Read what we wrote. Don't make us dance around. Mm -hmm. Now, that said and done with, obviously we all have to pitch because that's the nature of the game. I don't have any difference between original pitches and adaptation pitches. I don't go in saying, guys, we all know Moby Dick, uh, but here's how I'm going to change it. I go in saying, here's my Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. I've found success doing that. I also think that it might distract an executive if you start setting up, here's what I'm going to change from the book, and now let's get into what I'm actually going to do. They don't care about this part. They care about what are you going to do? Yep, that's great advice. And then once you're hired, they say, hey, Evan, we love your outline. We love your pitch, even though you hated pitching to us. <laughs> what's your what's your your first step from there? 
Is it off of the outline that you've? Oh, always. Um, now, invariably, that's where you get into, we have 10% of notes. We hired you for the 90%, but here's right. the 10% of thoughts. Um, this character you cut, please bring him back. Um, this subplot you added, well, I get it. Uh, so, you know, that's the normal stuff of, okay, now, the conver- now I'm hired. What's the development process? What are you guys looking for that I didn't give you in my pitch? Sometimes the pitch is exactly what they were looking for. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes it happens. Awesome. Uh, actually, with Hercules, that was the case. Oh. So that is kind of the, na- the nature of it. Uh, I'm trying to think like with Snake Eyes, with Snake Eyes, you know, it was a lot of, uh, they already knew what the budget was. So it was a lot of, hey, you can't blow up, you know, South America. You have to, mm-hmm. you can't drop a comet on Antarctica. Um, it was, it, you know, it was more, it was more like, because the, the, the producers were the keepers of the G.I. Joe franchise. So a lot of it was uh, reining it in. This character won't do that. That character won't do that. But this story is it. So it was building off the structure that I provided. Is that hard for you to do where they're, they're kind of giving you the, you have to kind of paint within a certain area or within numbers for the characters or are you able to just kind of adapt with that so i'll tell you the eight years of disney animation taught me to adapt the eight years the eight years of disney animation were invaluable they were film school i actually Mm -hmm. felt with no offense to disney but i felt like i was a young uh craftsman working for roger corman in the 60s because you know how they say Mm. working for corman yeah it was cheap but you learned your craft and he he created Scorsese, Nicholson, and Jonathan Demme, and all yeah. these filmmakers mm-hmm. came out of the Roger Corman school. Why? Because you had to make a movie in three weeks. Well, you better learn. Uh, and writing Disney animation, animation has a great, and a great thing that uh, live action doesn't have, which is you can watch the whole movie and then scrap it and start over. And it's actually part of your pipeline and part of your uh, development process. So because you're not animating it, you're basically dr- creating a whole movie out of still drawings you have the animators often, the board artists often voice the character, so you're not hiring George Clooney. And you see it, and you see what doesn't work, and you can change it. But the fact is, being a staff writer was working on features constantly. And we, we were all a group of, eight, I think, eight writers. So we got to, one guy would get pulled in and do the structure. Then somebody else would jump in and, and polish the dialogue. And uh, one person was excellent in gags. So everybody was bringing their talents. Well, after the first couple of years, an osmosis developed where we all start feeding off each other's talents. And so we all, all our skills that were like not up to par started rising because of our interaction with our fellow writers. So in this day, the reason, knock on wood, I I seem to be a working writer is because a student comes back and says, remember that movie we said was going to take place in a basement in a haunted uh, convent? It's now on Mars. Yeah, sure. Great. Okay. Bigger. Yeah, that is a fantastic, fantastic skill to have. And I am definitely learning that right now on Tomb Raider, where we're having these conversations of like, well, yeah, but like budget, you know, this is literally our budget to the cent sure. for our episode. Sure. <laughs> you, your big dreams, Tasha, you got to cut them, you know? That's a challenge. Um, but it's Yeah, great. that's a challenge because we, I think as writers, invariably we think big. And um, it's, it's awkward when they're like, yeah, that great scene that n- has never been shot before, we can't do it. Yeah. You know what I love, though, Evan? I don't know if you guys love this part of writing, too, is when you do do your kind of dream draft, your vomit dream draft, it's now and it's, you know, 20, 
pages too long. Like the puzzle piecing of figuring out how to get to point A from point A to point C, but getting rid of B is actually really fun to me. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you guys like that part. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Oh, love it. <laughs> Just like, um, no. No. All right. So I want to kind of pivot into the unholy yeah. for a second, because this is your uh, directorial debut. Yes. Have you directed any shorts? Never. Not even. Not well. If you go back to college, sure, uh, a short. But uh, no, not not seriously, not professionally, not uh, not not no. <laughs> oh wow! And, and what what was the moment that you were, you said? you know, I'm going to direct the whole, uh, the unholy, excuse me. Is it because you were, you knew you were the one to tell the story? I was forced to tell the story. No, the, the story, ah. the, I never, ever, ever, ever wanted to direct a movie ever. And, oh. and the reason for that is I've been on too many sets and have seen what the director goes through. And I thoroughly enjoy uh, writing in my little environment. And for a split second in time in the life of a project, being the writer, director, producer, and star in my head of the whole thing. And then you finish the script and you deliver it and it goes off into the ether and you're hoping and praying that it's got the budget and it's got the talents and it's got cast and it gets made. I did not want to direct, period. And uh, I, it reached a, I reached a point where Screen Gems in 2018 jumped forward and said, we want to make it. And then out of the blue, they said, and we're interested in you directing it. And the reason they said that is because I'd been living with it for so long and um, I had a name as a writer. So they were like, oh, no, it's great. We love giving new talent, you know, pushing people forward yeah. in new directions in their careers. And my team said yes for me. <laughs> no. And 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 my reaction was, OK, I'll stay with it until they realize I'm an idiot and they'll let me go and hire a grown up. And they never did. I will say the big difference, of course, was it made me feel better was when Sam Raimi came aboard and there was the grown up and he held my hand and all that good stuff. Uh, uh, and as I often say, you know, the, the guy was uh, instrumental in the whole uh, pre-production, the whole development process, the whole pre-production process. He was with us for the first two weeks of production. And then he, because of the timing of it all, he had to go off and uh, direct this indie that I, I, you may have heard of. It's uh, this Doctor Strange thing sequel. It's some, I don't know. It's this this up and coming Benedict something actor. And yeah. yeah, so we lost him. I've heard of we it. Lost him. I'm so wow. fascinated by this process because I have also never wanted to be a director in my entire life. It terrifies me. That's not my skill mm -hmm. set. I'm a writer who lives in a tiny, you know, in, in the mm -hmm. corner, but have recently thought, hmm, like that transition might be interesting and have been talking to people who are like, stick with me, kid. Like I'll show you the ropes <laughs> on set. And yeah. I'm very curious for you because so many writers, for example, you know, learn on television sets if they write for TV and they learn how to direct from from someone like that. What was your process going from screenwriter to director? Was it just like, hey, now you're a director and you have had no experience with, I mean, you said you were a PA for a while, so you studied that. I guess that's my question is what was your sort of hard knock education for a director? Well, it, this was the hard knock, but I, it wasn't, uh, the experience that I had before was, um, in, you know, the animated movies, obviously, you're technically always on set because the set is, you know, the Disney offices in Burbank. So you're always there. But I, I had the good fortune of being on set for Hercules uh, and for my sci-fi channel movies. So but but the thing is, I, I had been on set, um, you know, for Huntsman and for Beauty and all that kind of stuff. So I had seen it less less uh, than the amount of time I was on for Hercules. I, I was on Hercules for four months in Budapest. But I, I knew you know, the, I knew the job. 
Um, but uh, when you're doing it, it's it's a challenge. And I'll I'll give you like just one detail, and it's the most minute challenge of all the challenges the director has to face. I am a week into pre-production. We were in Massachusetts where we shot the movie in its entirety. And I see a line of people outside my door and it's like they're holding numbers and they're all waiting to talk to me and they're all the department heads and they all have questions. And it's costumes and makeup and editorial and sound and the production designer and the props master, everybody, everybody. And the cinematographer, like you name it, they're there and they're waiting. And I went through one day and Sam called me and said, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, I can't go to the bathroom. <laughs> I literally could not take a bathroom break. So that's that's the most minor challenge, by the way. I don't know if you guys are aware, but we got shut down by the pandemic and then had to yeah, restart. So yeah, yeah, that was a bigger yes. problem. What a directorial debut where you're you're starting out and you're like, hey, I got this. And then all of a sudden the, you know, the worst thing to happen could have possibly happened. Yeah, I'm not surprised one bit. Like I, I knew that if I ever got to direct a movie, the world would end. So, <laughs> so you did this. It's your oh, yeah. fault. Oh, it's yeah. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> How long were you guys shut down for? Five months. Wow. Yeah. We we had a seven week shoot. We shut down March 16th uh, at the fourth week. We came home. We locked down. Um, I virtually assembled the movie with our editor Jake York. We, which I think, by the way, is a unique experience. I don't, I can't think yeah. of any other director who can stop a movie, go away for five months, edit it, look at what he's got, see what he needs to do, and then go back and finish it. Uh, the mm -hmm. joke the studio had was things were going so well that we decided to take the summer off. Um, <laughs> but uh, thankfully, I mean, not many movies uh, managed to pull back, uh, pull together right. and finish. And uh, it was a, just a commitment of the studio really wanted to finish this movie. And the actors wanted to finish it. And when we went back to Massachusetts, 95% of our crew came back. And out of the 5% that didn't, 2% had gotten jobs already. So um, oh, it was, yeah, we, you know, we created a nice little family up there. That's, that's also the nice thing about a tighter movie. I mean, it wasn't the half a million dollar sci-fi channel movies. It was a $10 million movie. But for studio level, it's a minute budget. And so that brings everybody closer together. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, with a uh, you know writer's temperament, what did you find to be the most difficult transition you had to make from a personality standpoint or a creative standpoint to becoming a director? Talking to people. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> people, stupid people. They never shut up. Um, yeah, that was it. It was basically standing in front of a crew of I don't know fifty and giving them instructions. Yeah. And were were there any scenes that you were filming that? As the screenwriter, you kind of envision differently where you're like, you're just watching this unfold before your eyes and you're like, this is or going terribly wrong. <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, not, no, thankfully not terribly wrong. Different, yes. I mean, yeah, especially when we came back to second phase where the part of, you know, part of the health requirements to protect our actors and our cast and to protect everybody, uh, we had shorter days. We had to hose down the set with antiseptic spray after each scene. We were all obviously in hazmat suits because the actors were super vulnerable because they weren't wearing masks. Uh, and critically, we couldn't have extras indoors. It's a whole, whole story about extras indoors. Well, basically, you could have up to nine people but six feet apart. So ultimately, for one scene, we actually had to tile our nine people. So we had to shoot them, dress them differently, shoot them, dress them differently. So there's a funeral scene in the movie where if you pause it, it's the same nine people spread out throughout this church. 
and yeah. we edited it in a way that it's really snappy. So hopefully you don't notice it in the first viewing. But that scene was like, yeah, that's that's not what I had in my head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of course. Wow. That I mean, that must be I mean, somewhat frustrating, but at the same time, really incredible that you're kind of pushing through and you're making it work. That's just like something I love about film is like people just find the way. Do you want to hear the even crazier part? So when we did return because of the timing, Carrie Always and Diogo Morgado couldn't return with us, but they wanted to finish the movie. So they're all green screen. So there's a scene where Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Diogo Morgado as uh, Monsignor Delgarde and Carrie Always as Bishop Giles are sitting around a table and it's just when Fenn is going to get the story. They're not in the same room. Diogo is in Lisbon. Carrie's in Los Angeles, and Jeffrey's in Massachusetts. Evan. <laughs> You'll be able to direct anything now. Yeah, I don't know. You're, you're going to be doing Doctor Strange 4 when we're done with this. <laughs> I, my, I'm like, if this was The Mandalorian, yeah, green screen it. But yeah. it's a $10 million horror movie, guys. And again, by the way, again, the reason we got finished is because Diogo and Carrie were like, no, we're finishing our scenes. We, we are finishing this movie. Tell us where you want us, and we'll do it. And we have a cinematographer named Craig Robleski who was nominated for his Guild's Award for the Blurry Man episode on Twilight Zone, uh, who basically, when we shot Jeffrey on location with a green screen for the other actors, took copious technical notes and then supervised the hiring of the L.A. team and the Portugal team and sent all his material over to those cinematographers who were stars. And they're like Diogo Morgado's death scene in the film. He's not in the room. He's not in the church with everybody else. Mm -hmm. So we've got a guy on a green screen, Diogo, reacting to a giant burning cross getting shoved into his chest. He's not there. Wait, spoiler yeah. alert, by the way. Yeah, big time spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, yeah. By the way, everybody dies in my movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was interesting because... Um, Tasha and I watched the movie at separate times and she had said, she was like, I think this stopped during COVID. I think, and she was reading some stats about it. And then it got me thinking, I kind of went back and I was trying to remember certain scenes, but I could, I, I, I honestly, it didn't really make much of a difference in and my viewing. It, like there, yeah. there wasn't a point where I was like, well, there's five people in that scene and they're six feet apart. <laughs> so, I mean, you did an amazing job with that. Thank That's you. Amazing. There's one scene actually, when uh, Jeffrey and Katie are running through the tent in act three which bumps me a lot. Um, everybody did everything we could, but it's the nature of the game. But basically, they're running against a green screen and all the extras aren't extras, they're computer. They're CGI people. And it bugs me because I, in my head, I was gonna put a handheld camera chasing them and they were gonna be pushing past the crowd and it would be this Hitchcockian scene where they're trying to get to the tent before Alice says the final words. And it's now they're running against a green screen with CGI extras. Mm. So there's that. Yeah. When you when you rewatch the movie, do you ever have a sense? Are you like rewriting it in your head or redirecting it in your head? Or are you like, that's that's the movie. That's it. I might have tweaked a thing here like you're saying right now, but that's it. Because for me, when I, you know, when you read reread a script from a couple years ago, you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I sent this out. I need to rewrite this. Um, yes, I definitely am rewriting in my head as <laughs> as one goes along and one is apt to do. It yeah. just but it just goes to show you, by the way, for, for writers out there who are listening in, um, things will come your way when you're shooting that you did not see coming, such as a global pandemic. Yeah. Well, that, that's interesting because we were going to ask if you have any advice for like, you know, screenwriters who have the bug to direct. You know, obviously, that's a good piece of advice what you just gave. But is there anything else that... <laughs> 
<laughs> don't direct during a pandemic. Um, yeah. The biggest piece of advice, which I learned from Sam, and it boy, it is so true. Pre-production is your best friend. So pre-production is the last time you're going to be able to make mistakes and not pay for it. And I encourage people to rehearse everything. And what I mean by that is it's obvious to rehearse the actors, but frankly, the higher your budget, the less opportunity you're going to have to rehearse the actors because the odds are they're all going to be stars and uh, they're not going to be able to join you until a day before you shoot them. And so it's actually very rare that you get a chance to rehearse the actors properly on location where in the locations you're going to uh, shoot. So what do you rehearse? You rehearse your camera moves. If it's a look, whether it's a location or a build, you take your cinematographer with a video camera and you go through the motions of what you're going to be shooting. You, if you can do a lighting rehearsal, awesome. Uh, you definitely rehearse your makeup people for practical makeup and have them apply the makeup uh, repeatedly on some poor innocent soul that you wrangle for the job. But it makes them more efficient because physical makeup looks awesome, looks so much better than CGI, but it eats up your time like you wouldn't believe. And um, uh, Stephen Chbosky, who's a great director, co-wrote Beauty and the Beast with me. Um, he advised me, uh, he told me that the first two weeks of production, you're sitting with the actors and you're sipping wine in the evenings and you're thinking of the great movie you're making. And the rest of the production, you're just trying to get uh, film in the can and uh, your minutes and make your days. And it's so true. Time is your biggest enemy. And when you're shooting, you're not going to have the chance to go, how do I see the scene? No, you better you better have it storyboarded or at least in your head and have discussed it with all your department heads and every single aspect cannot be left to inspiration of the moment. Sorry, we're not doing, uh, you know, cinema verite in France. It's uh, if you're shooting within the studio system, you got to be ready. That, that's interesting. It's almost when I think of screenwriting, it's almost like having an extensive outline where you know exactly what you're doing before you get into a script. You know, we often talk and there's always the debate like, how much do you need to outline before you jump into something? And, and mm -hmm. the more you have, the more prepared you are, you're always going to be better off. I am a huge believer in the outline. And, you know, I'm now, what is it? Uh, as a working writer, should I, guys, do I count the sci-fi movies? I guess I do, right? Absolutely. All right. All right. I'm 25 years a working writer in the business. I've never, I, thank you. I've never had writer's block. And the reason I've never had writer's block is because I work off a very detailed outline and I know exactly where I'm going and where the plot is going, where the characters are going. So um, I, I'm a huge believer in it. I mean, I will say there are times and those are magical moments where you're writing and the character suddenly does something differently than what you've outlined. And it's awesome. It's a miracle because you're like, the character just came alive. That's fantastic. But in the big picture, the outline saves you time and time again. Yeah, I, I was literally just having this conversation today with a couple uh, TV writers, and they were talking about their current showrunners and how I am a very overprepared person, right? So when I come into my room, I have my Bible, I have my outlines, I know exactly what we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> and we are out of the room by 3pm as a result, right? But um, these writers were talking about how their current showrunner is just kind of like, they threw out the Bible. They sort of don't know what they're doing. They're there till seven and they still haven't made headway. And it's like, mm. oh yeah, that like that quality of just being really overprepared while it might make, make you know, your, your friend feel a little bit anxious when you try to go on a trip or something because you just have your itinerary. It's actually really helpful as a screenwriter. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you, you believe that because it makes me feel better about being that way as well. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, I, I very rarely have encountered in feature side uh, producers or directors who want to be 
more flexible. Um, and I'm being very kind by the word flexible. Flexibility is good, <laughs> but I'm talking about people who are like, "Woo, let's throw everything out the window and see what lands." The few times that I've encountered that, I they're they're on my shit list, frankly. Mm-hmm. They're they are they are the few people that I, I I've had very good luck with people that I've worked with in this industry, but. Uh, there are a few that while sweet people as individuals, I just don't want to work with again because they can't stick to a, anything. They can't stick yeah. to a schedule or a concept or anything. Yeah, it's important. My last question, I don't know about yeah. Josh, but mine is yeah. just kind of a wrap up question, which is for writers who are looking to adapt IP for major studios like yourself, what advice do you have for them to kind of make that jump into adaptation? Because I think a lot of writers actually get intimidated or scared by the adaptation? Hmm. Well, I, first of all, I think they need to find the IP. So in other words, instead of pursuing an, an IP for the studio, if they've got such shaky legs on doing an adaptation, they have to find something that they discovered they truly believe in, like Shrine and the Unholy. You know, have, have them find a book, a story, a poem, an article, a play, a song, a whatever that speaks to them that they have a vision for, and then they take it to the studio, and they're the ones who set it up. That's the best way to do it. Now, if you discover that a certain studio has your favorite book of all time, yes, pursue it, absolutely. But pursue it knowing that your favorite book of all time, you'll have to take a big knife to and carve out a movie. And being overtly respectful, oh, you've got to be respectful of the source material, but you've got to be respectful to the spirit of the source material. You cannot be overtly respectful to the actual text because you will not be able to make a movie out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's a perfect segue to wrapping up with Xena, as I said, because yes. there was a chance for me to to uh, to pitch on the reboot of Xena. And I said, no, even though it's one of my favorite shows of all time, because I was just going to make Xena. I wasn't going to make a reboot of Xena. I was just going to make Xena. So I was not the right person to do that. That's just wow. it's neither here nor there. But Evan, thank you so much. Thank I, you. Please tell tell us where you can watch The Unholy so that people can go see your directorial debut and your first horror movie. Three different ways. We're coming out on Blu-ray and DVD June 22nd. We are currently streaming on all major platforms, and we're actually in theaters. So oh. find us. Go see a movie, people. Yeah. That's awesome. That's the best place to see it, especially since it's a horror movie. Yes. I just want to confirm that I purchased The Unholy, guys. <laughs> I did not go to the theater, but I did purchase it. I just, I just want to, I just want to throw it out there. You have put was, residuals in my pocket, sir. Thank you. That's hey, that's what happens when you come on the Act Two podcast. <laughs> no, but thank you so much uh, for coming on. Thank you, thank you yeah, very much. Yeah, it was such a pleasure to just hear, you know, your experience in adaptation. I know a lot of the people who listen to this podcast work in this in this medium, and it's just very helpful to hear your experiences and be able to rate relate to that. So I'm going to wrap up with, I think, a very apt quote by Akiva Goldsman. Adaptation is always the same process for me, which is some version of throwing the book at the wall and seeing what pages fall out. It is trying to imagine, remember the story, read it, put it down, and then write some sort of outline without the book in front of you with some hope that what you liked about it will be filtered through your memory. And it's similar to what other people will like about it. I just thought that was great because it's also exactly your process that you described. (laughs) I agree with every word of that. Absolutely. All right, everyone, please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. 
and me, uh, Josh Hallman on Instagram and Joshua Hallman on Twitter. And Evan, are you on social media? I don't reveal that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Burner account. That's really smart. <laughs> As always, guys, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, which is a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Bag, which you can find on Spotify. Spotify.